This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Russia's meddling in the 2016 elections. We learn from this, you know, everything from the Mueller report to the, to this, you know, the intelligence community's own intelligence community assessment on the Russian interference. This is the document produced and, and put out both in classified and unclassified form in early 2017. Um, so we had book on what the Russians did. So it's very natural for them to try and uh, 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 evolve. Mark Polymeropoulos, retired member of the CIA Senior Intelligence Service, says there's something else that the world is watching very carefully, President Trump's relationship with Russia. There is some kind of fascination he had. Now, a lot of people wonder if there's much more of that or not. We're going to know when, once we kind of get a look into the SBR or the FSB files. That's coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Mark Polymeropoulos served 26 years in the CIA. He retired from the Senior Intelligence Service last year, 2019. His positions included field and headquarters operational assignments. He worked in Europe, the Middle East, Eurasia, and in counterterrorism. He's the recipient of the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Commendation Medal, and the Intelligence Medal of Merit. He also worked on Russia issues later in his career, and that's what we started this conversation with. Later on in your career, you had some interaction in this whole Russia problem the U.S. has, Russia interfering with the U.S., what Russia's objectives and motives and plans were, uh, when dealing with the U.S. So the first thing I'd like to ask is, what do you believe Russia's end game is when it comes to interfering in the U.S. and for the U.S.? Well, uh, thanks, JJ. That, you know, that's, that's a, it's a great question. You know, there's a lot of, you know, serious Russia watchers with, uh, with you, know, uh, you know, vastly, you know, decades more experience than I who can kind of dive into kind of the nitty gritty of this. But I always looked at it in very simple terms, you know, as, as kind of first aligned CIA case officer and then as a, an operational manager. And that's that Russia, you know, wanted to just sow kind of chaos, dissension and, and, and disruption in our political system. And it all is based on, you know, Russian ple- President Putin's desire to kind of regain great power status. And ultimately, anything he does to weaken the United States is, is good for Russia. So he really plays this zero sum game. So you, you mentioned Putin and the U.S. And I want to ask you kind of here at the top as well. The president has been a bit reluctant to push back against anything that Russia's done. Um, you know, he seems to have a good relationship with Putin, some kind of relationship with Putin. I don't know how to describe it. Um, how much damage do you think has been done by not forcefully pushing back on so many issues with Russia, letting Russia seemingly get away with things, including bounties and including harassing U.S. allies and undermining the U.S. abroad? 
So, so, you know, I think there's been tremendous damage because ultimately, and, and I guess equate this with, you know, with kind of a, a, you know, a playground scenario, you know, if there's a bully there, you gotta, you gotta smack the bully, punch him right back in the nose. And so our inability or, you know, more, more uh, succinctly is president Trump's inability um, to, to push back and all of the, 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 the kind of egregious attempts that, that president Putin has, um, has done uh, against the United States, I think that is incredibly damaging. It just enables Russia to do more. Um, and without giving them a punch in the nose, um, this, this, uh, this is going to continue. And I think that you see a lot what's happening. And, you know, we hear a lot in the press now about continued Russian efforts to interfere with our uh, upcoming 2020 elections. Everything uh, uh, stems from our kind of our inability to uh, hit back at them, uh, you know, hard after 2016. What do you believe is behind the relationship between the president oh. and Putin. Well, that's that's the huge question. So I answer this, you know, in in kind of two parts. One is there is it is clear, and you know, this is from kind of my working for you know the first two and a half years uh, in a senior position at CIA and, and really you know watching President Trump operate. But there's clearly a fascination he has not just with Putin but with all strongmen. And so you know why that is, you know, it's you know certainly a matter of debate. Maybe it's you know based on his kind of ties as this New York entrepreneur and this you know business and cutthroat, uh, uh, you know, New York um, uh, real estate business. But ultimately, there is some kind of fascination he has. Now, a lot of people wonder if there's much more of that or not. Um, I will say, and, and, you know, kind of my my standard line, and I believe this is, we're going to know when, once we kind of get a look into the SVR or the FSB files, you know, what do, what do they have on President Trump? What is their view of him? And, you know, ultimately, we would get that from you know, a, a penetration of Russian intelligence or, or perhaps a defector years later. Um, but ultimately, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just this giant unknown. A lot of people, you know, call Trump uh, a Russian agent. I think that's um, probably a little too simplistic. But his fascination with Putin ultimately has, has pushed the United States down a path where, uh, you know, our, our policy towards Russia, first of all, there is none. Uh, but second of all, we never seem to push back on kind of this egregious Russian behavior. Now, talking specifically about some of the things that Russia's doing, former director of national intelligence Jim Clapper told us on the previous episode that he believes we're not seeing all of Russia's tactics and 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 all of what they're doing to try to undermine the 2020 election because he believes they studied their mistakes and more specifically he said he believes they went word for word through the Mueller report volume 1 and learned um, from their 2016 mistakes and have shifted their tactics. Do you see it that way? Yeah, and I think that's that's you know uh, you know very very smart analysis there because first of all that's what any you know intelligence service would do, um, and second of all it's clear that we learn from this you know everything from the Mueller report to the to this you know the intelligence community's own intelligence community assessment on the Russian interference. This is the document produced and and put out both in classified and unclassified form in early 2017. Um, so we had book on what the Russians did. So it's very natural for them to try and uh, uh, evolve. You know, I'm not on the inside anymore. So I've been retired for a year. So I can't comment, you know, obviously um, on what the Russians are doing now. But I think it's fairly clear from what we hear, uh, especially from the Hill, from uh, members on both HIPSI and SISI, the, the uh, oversight committees, when they have received the classified briefings. Um, uh, and also just generally, you know, as we see kind of Russian bad behavior kind of worldwide, not only when we're talking about our elections, but interference in, in, in European elections uh, and other places, you know, the Russians are going to evolve and they're going to certainly come at us again. 
Talk to us specifically, if you can, about what you think, not necessarily, you know, as you said, you're not on the inside anymore, but just give us a sense of how they could possibly change their tactics uh, to do whatever they want to do in the 2020 election, because it's very clear they're at it. They're doing something. And um, I'm just interested in hearing what you think they might have tweaked or changed. Well, sure. Well, you know, well, first of all, they're, the Russians, the Russian intelligence services are clearly experts at, at disinformation. You know, the active measures campaigns, which are documented, it's historic, um, whether it's it's, you know, during the Cold War talking about, you know, uh, you know, how uh, about, you know, the United States creating the AIDS ep- epidemic um, and everything towards kind of the disinformation campaigns that that they that they do now. Um, so, that, you know, they're, they're, there's there's no question in my mind that they're going to kind of uh, move forward on this. And and we are a very willing uh, and welcome participant. One of the things that has kind of pained me as a, as a member of the executive branch and an apolitical one, you know, up until I retired and my views are, are, you know, can be seen on Twitter now. But what pains me is that so many, and particularly in the GOP and, and, and on the Hill, Republicans on the Hill are, are, you know, welcome this Russian disinformation. So we are playing exactly into their hands, despite repeated warnings from the intelligence community. So that's something that um, that I think is deeply troubling. Now, what would the Russians do, uh, you ask? Well, again, if you take a look at what, what happened in 2016, they're going to look for kind of hot button issues uh, that, that are that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, make the United States boil. So what is it right now? Well, they're going to talk about things like the Second Amendment. They're going to talk about things like Black Lives Matter. They're going to try to roil up enough um, uh, uh, you know, discontent and anger that already exists in America. And they will, of course, just try to exacerbate this to cause these divisions. Um, so, you know, I, I, I look back and, and again, not being on the inside, I think about issues of race. Um, I think about, you know, uh, issues of, of guns. Um, uh, and, and of course, you know, the classic line that you see even the GOP use right now is, and it's, of course, it's ironic, is that, you know, Joe Biden or the Democrats are socialists. Now, this is something that we know the Russians are going to are going to push through their kind of um, uh, dis, uh, dissemination mechanisms. But of course, it's quite ironic coming from you know the former the, the former Soviet Union. Mark, one of the things that's more uh, in the forefront of, of all of this right now is, as you mentioned, the Black Lives Matter protest, and uh, you talk about the Second Amendment and some of the other issues that are definitely in the forefront of some of the chaos across the country right now. Um, but you also mentioned this this thing about people pushing Russian disinformation, even though they know that it is or have been told that it is. We spoke with Fiona Hill not long ago on this podcast, and we spoke with her about that warning that she delivered on Capitol Hill about the narratives that were being pushed about Ukraine perhaps being uh, behind the 2016 uh, right. problems when everyone knows it's Russia, but what is it that makes people do that? What is it that has, in your opinion, made some of these folks with good reputations, I suppose, do that? Well, you know, you know, JJ, the amazing thing is that I was lucky as a as a CIA officer and especially a field officer. I had a lot of contact over the years um, with members of Congress, and so I have really deep respect on both sides of the aisle. I mean, I think back to some, you know, some of the kind of the titans. Um, uh, you know, who served in, in the oversight role, Mike Rogers, who, you know, it was, it, we had, we had an incredible relationship um, uh, with the congressman and also with the committee staff, again, both minority or, or majority, whoever was, uh, uh, you know, in, in power at the time. What, what I never thought I would see, though, was, uh, and I, and again, you know, not to name names, 
but but congressmen and, and you know and, and several prominent ones now, committee chairs and others, using really using known Russian disinformation, even though we know they've been briefed by the intelligence community not to. You know, um, I think that ultimately you kind of you know you kind of chalk that up to to this you know how how President Trump has kind of poisoned um, the Republican Party, and I can't think of any other way. To, to describe that. Again, a party which was staunchly anti-Soviet, anti-communist for so many years, yet now we have so many uh, Republican members on the Hill pushing this kind of Russian disinformation narrative when they know, you know, anything that comes from the uh, Russian, you know, RT, from Sputnik, um, uh, uh, or from known kind of, uh, uh, you know, pro-Russian uh, individuals, you know, uh, in Ukraine or, or, or other places. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, they know what they're doing, they know it's wrong, but they're still doing it. And it's something that you know, it's distressing to me just as an American, let alone a former uh, intelligence officer. You know, the, re- the relationship between the president and the intelligence community has been strained from the very beginning. And I'm wondering why you suppose that is. Well, I mean, you know, it, it all stems from, uh, I think, his rejection of the idea of Russian interference. And this, you know, this started, of course, in the campaign. And then, you know, it, 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 it certainly continued afterwards. So, you know, as someone who, and, and, I, and I'll kind of give you some vignettes. I mean, I, as I sat in my office after the inauguration and, and, and I was reading, and all of this is out in the Mueller report now, but as, as, as we're reading kind of the Russian attempts or what the Russians did in 2016, but also things like, um, you know, former National Security Advisor Flynn and Jared Kushner trying to set up, you know, a secret channel via the, via the Russian ambassador uh, Kislyak um, at the Russian embassy to talk about Syria, but this is using, you know, Russian embassy communications. You know, my, our, our heads wanted to explode. You know, this stuff shouldn't be happening. And ordinarily, you know, uh, you would be able to take these things to senior administration officials or um, to the FBI or others. And, and so, so there, there was, there was, you know, distrust. I think is the wrong word, at least from our side. You know, we were, we it was, it was almost, you know, we were sitting there almost amazed at. Um, uh, you know, President Trump's uh, uh, kind of disinterest in what we had to say about Russia. Um, and again, of course, also his uh, his uh, his fascination with with Putin. Here, here's, uh, this is this is a, uh, a comparison I've made a lot of times. And again, I didn't talk really a lot about my career before, but I, I kind of grew up in the Middle East and I was a, I was a, a Near East Division case officer for years and years until I moved over to the to the Russia side. But but here's what I equate, you know, the you know, the 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 Oval Office meeting where um, President Trump met with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and Ambassador Kislyak. Mm-hmm. That, to me, was like George W. Bush right after 9-11 welcoming bin Laden and saying, it's okay, you know, I understand. You know, bin Laden says, my bad, sorry about that. That was, the, that was what we were feeling, is how is this happening, where, where a country attacked us, which is what Russia did in 2016, similar to al-Qaeda, what they did on 9-11, and how is our president being, you know, you know able to forgive um, and, and not really listen to uh, or be interested in kind of uh, the, the you know very firm conclusions of the of the intelligence community about Russian behavior. Yeah, that's remarkable, and uh, a lot of people think about that and talk about that all the time. And we continue to um, mull it over. And as you said before, we are not in we're an apolitical uh, podcast here. We don't get into one side or the other, but facts are facts. And you just have to face them wherever you are. And if you don't, then there are problems for not facing facts. One of the things that we've learned as well from looking at your background is that, as you mentioned today, you were deeply involved in the Middle East most of your career, but were brought over to help deal with the threat from Russia. And I'm wondering how you used your Middle East experience to help in that venture. 
Sure. So, so I think that, you know, uh, again, uh, you know, going into my role um, in early 2017, um, this was done, you know, it was done in a deliberate fashion. And, and I really credit the senior leadership of, uh, of the agency. So they took several of us all in the senior intelligence service ranks and all essentially from the Near East Division who had been involved in, you know, uh, uh, you know, various, um, you know, uh, uh, conflict zones, whether it was Iraq, Afghanistan, various covert action programs, but kind of doing a hard time in the Middle East. And they brought us to kind of work the Russia problem because what they wanted to do was kind of take that same ethos, that same mindset that we had uh, after 9/11, um, and, and and bring it to, uh, 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 bring it to bear on uh, on Russia. And you know, I, I tell a story, and 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 I think this is this is uh, very relevant. I, I helped um, uh, our senior officials kind of write a message to our workforce, and we called it a call to arms. And again, I talked just about that. It's, you know, we were, you know, we were attacked in 9-11 and the agency performed in a spectacular fashion in Afghanistan. We need to take that same ethos now after we were attacked, um, uh, you know, against our, our, our democratic system and kind of use that same ethos to, to, to go after and, uh, and counter the Russians. And, and when I think we did so, you know, as best as we can, despite the fact having a, a you know, a president who had this weird affinity for, for Putin, you know, we were able to, to kind of push back worldwide and are continuing to do so. Um, and I think it's a, you know it's a credit to the men and women in the intelligence community who who kind of see that same level of threat um, that's that you have that same kind of internal anger about what the Russians did to us, um, just like what uh, happened uh, after 9/11 with Al Qaeda. You know the place where the U.S. is right now, um, especially after the George Floyd protest, which triggered protest all across the country. You know there were numerous things that took place that exacerbated. Um, I guess, the protest across the country, you know, not one of not one of these incidents, you know, has left anybody doubting that the U.S. has some serious issues in resolving, you know, how to deal with these protests, at least from a governmental level. I guess what I'm trying to say here is a lot of people were shocked by some of the things they saw. Um, during these protests, not the least of which were the Bible incident in front of St. John's Church and the Lafayette Square confrontation. I'd like to hear what you have to say about how that harms U.S. national security. Sure. So so let me say just, first of all, you know, talking about harming U.S. national security, that, that was kind of deeply painful for a lot of us. And, and keep in mind that I spent my career in the Middle East. So as a CIA case officer, as an operations officer on the ground, if there were protests in any country where I was serving, we'd go out and we would report on that, you know, to write a situation report back to back to Langley. And we would see things such as, you know, crackdowns on, you know, legitimate protests, police brutality, um, certainly kind of uh, dissembling and lies from whatever regime we were we were covering. And so, you know, as I watched live the events at, at Lafayette Square Park, I was I was horrified. And I think I, I made, you know, I was, you know, very publicly I, I, I spoke out. Uh, uh, about this. And even the next day, I actually went down to Lafayette Square. I had to see for it, you know, myself what happened. Um, it certainly was, you know, I kind of reminisced about my times uh, in the Middle East. But but ultimately, you know, um, it made me really kind of think and question. And, and I was you know, quite upset. This is not the country we should be. Um, and, and again, and, and I blame this, you know, and, and you know, I was I was I'm an intelligence officer and I have friends who are in the Secret Service who are who are cops who are FBI agents, who are in the DEA and, and the Marshal Service. And I have great affinity for these people. So, you know, I watched in horror that Park Police kind of tactical unit, you know, beat up the Australian reporter. But ultimately, I was more upset that this was a failure in leadership on the part of the administration, and particularly 
um, President Trump uh, and his national security team to kind of allow this to happen. And so, look, we are not Saddam's Iraq or Bashar's Syria. There's not, you know, you know, thousands of, of people being killed um, uh, uh, in, in crackdowns on the streets or more than that. Um, so we have to be careful on that on that nuance. But what you do see, what, what I saw there was it was a, a president who orchestrated this kind of ridiculous photo op, um, ordered security forces in to kind of crack down on a, on a peaceful crowd. And there was a there was his leadership team around him, whether it was Secretary of Defense Esper um, or, or Chairman of Joint Chiefs Milley, who actually walked with him through that park. And that was really deeply disturbing because and I'm going to come full circle here. While, while President Trump has his limitations, we always expected the team around him to kind of you know, uh, uh, be a voice of reason. And so, um, boy, that was a, that was a really, really, uh, uh, a tough time. And I was, I was deeply upset about what I, what I witnessed on television. And I went down the next day to actually kind of, kind of, kind of relive it and take a look exactly what had happened. That's remarkable that you actually are able to talk about this, say this. I don't, you know, doing that, I don't doubt and, and, and wouldn't have doubts for any moment that someone of your conviction who has served this nation the way you have would go down there to mix in and to you know to feel a part of this this moment, which was one of the the greatest moments in our modern history. Down there, um, for all the right reasons, you went down there. But the fact that you're actually talking about this um, are are there any ramifications for that? No, I mean, no, well, well, first of all, you know, the, the one thing about when you retire from, from the agency, look, I have a I have a First Amendment right to speak out. Now, you know, a lot of the things that when I when I actually write something formally, whether it's I'm writing a book now or or when I write something, you know, uh, myself and several others did not bed in The Washington Post uh, a couple of weeks ago or, or writing for other publications. I get that cleared by the agency. So, you know, I, I, my, I I'm bound by my secrecy agreement in terms of not talking about classified information. But I'm an American and I have First Amendment rights. And I think based on my background, I have a, I have a pretty compelling story and, a, and an outlook on things that might be a little different. You do. You know, uh, and so so, I, you know, I want to speak out on things like that. Now, if people listen, that's great. But um, but I think there's a there's a there's a fairly uh, interesting role for former intelligence officers, um, both anal- on the analytic side, but also on the operational side. Um, and, and let me give you a, a perfect example. What if I was covering if I was if I was a station chief or a deputy station chief in X, Y, Z country in the Middle East and that regime, even if it was an ally, had beaten up protesters on the street, we, we would have had a country team meeting where myself and the ambassador and perhaps the league and the political officer and uh, with guidance from the State Department, we would have gone into March. We would have protested this on behalf of the United States government to all of our contacts. So that's what I was thinking about when I was down there as well was like. You know, this is something that that we would have kind of raised a stink about. Like, you can't do this. You can't continue to get USAID. There cannot be a bilateral intelligence relationship if you're beating up, you know, peaceful protesters on the street or cracking down on the media. And so, um, you know, uh, uh, really, La- I think Lafayette Square, when it comes down to it, when the history is, is written about the last the last several years, that's going to be a pretty seminal moment um, uh, yeah. in, in, you know, in the in the Trump presidency, um, but also where a lot of national security professionals really spoke out. You're exactly right about that. History's going to tell that story. Bringing this back to where we started to get some final thoughts from you on this, looking at the Russia situation. What is Russia doing with all of what all of this? I mean, what we started off talking about, their plans to shift their interference efforts, uh, witnessing the chaos uh, in, in the U.S., in the society, and continuing to try to, to foment more chaos and, and recognizing where the president stands and the administration stands on Russian activities, allowing them 
uh, to do whatever. Uh, and then this whole piece uh, about uh, what took place in the streets of Washington, D.C. What's Russia doing with all this? So, well, again, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's designed to, to sow chaos, you know, so the Russian active measures, you know, it's not like our covert action programs where we have to write a proposal and there's an end game. For Russia, there is no end game. I would argue that even even during 2016, there wasn't an end game. Um, uh, and so it's it's sowing this dissension. But I think there's a there's a, a, a because ultimately they want to weaken the United States. They want to weaken our institutions. You know, obviously, kind of the expansion of NATO is, is always on their mind. But but JJ, there's a, there's a there's a point I really want to make here because there's a way to combat all of this. So we see Russian bad behavior, and this is not kind of some secret CIA kind of covert action plan. The way to com- combat Russian uh, bad behavior is to publicize it. Um, and I think that you know uh, U.S. and our and our allies have been good at doing that, but the media has a big role in that as well. You have firms such as you know Bellingcat, um, or or you know or or uh, uh, yourself as a reporter. So you know uh, uh, at the end of the day. The way to counteract um, or, or the best kind of kind of uh, influence campaigns that we can do is just to tell the truth, uh, both in the United States and with our allies about all these nefarious things that the Russians are doing. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, that's that, that I think is something that should be uh, and, and is a, a, you know, a huge focus, not only of, of the U.S. government, but also of our allies. Yeah. And you're right. We as the media have a role in this and we can't shrink away from it, regardless of whether or not we get pressure from people to stop reporting things that they don't like. Um, that's never been our job to uh, report the things that people like or dislike. It's been our job to tell the truth. And uh, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today telling your truth here on our program, Target USA. And uh, I did neglect to say at the very beginning of the program that you were a very highly decorated, if not one of the most decorated people in the special or senior intelligence service. And we'd like to thank you for your service. Thanks, JJ. It's been great, great being here today. That was an interview with Mark Polymeropoulos, who retired from the CIA after 26 years. And he spent the latter part of his career working on Russia issues. And it was a great interview, a lot of good insight because he's willing to be candid about what he thinks. And uh, we learned a lot. Coming up in our next episode, we'll take a look at the threat matrix facing the U.S. That means several different countries, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, others, and some other issues facing the U.S. and how the U.S. is going to deal with them. That's coming up in our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green. That's one word at WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com, WTOP.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security information, I've got a newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. comes out every Thursday. Sign up for it at WTOP.com slash alerts. And finally... Thank you for listening. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.